we, the participants in the multi-party negotiations, believe that the agreement we have negotiated offers a truly historic opportunity for a new beginning. These are the opening lines of the Belfast Agreement. The tragedies of the past have left a deep and profoundly regrettable legacy of suffering. We must never forget those who have died or been injured and their families. But we can best honour them through a fresh start in which we firmly dedicate ourselves to the achievement of reconciliation, tolerance and mutual trust and to the protection and vindication of the human rights of all. It's been 20 years since this document was signed and served as a roadmap for a relatively peaceful end to the troubles in Northern Ireland. The deal was made on Good Friday that year, the 10th of April 1998, and has become known since as the Good Friday Agreement. For much of the preceding three decades, Northern Ireland had been a place of terror, with soldiers patrolling the streets and paramilitarism a way of life for many. After 20 years of the peace process, Northern Ireland is a very different and much more peaceful place, but that peace is fragile. There are still walls that divide communities, still entrenched political views, and still more uncertainty about the future. I'm Will Freitas, and this episode of The Ant Hill from The Conversation is all about the Good Friday Agreement. We'll be speaking to a range of different academic experts about its legacy and the threat to the settlement posed by Brexit. Brexit's arrived with a meteorite out of the blue and is problematised and complicated issues to do with the final destination constitutionally of Northern Ireland. And we'll hear about what life is like today for young people growing up in Northern Ireland, many of whom still go to schools based on their religion. The jury's out in terms of whether or not separate schools actually contribute to um, hostilities or the perpetuation of conflict. And we'll be hearing from historians about the leaders from across the political divide who managed to get the negotiations over the line. I think it was a remarkably lucky confluence of personality. Each side of the conflict in Northern Ireland has its own traditions, sets of symbols and versions of history. So it's worth setting out some definitions from the get-go. In its broadest terms, the conflict was between two groups with different ideas on how Northern Ireland should be governed. On one side were the Unionists and Loyalists, those people who want Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. Loyalism is more hardline in its associations than Unionism. But the main difference between Loyalism and Unionism is a class difference. Loyalists are working class whereas unionists are middle class. That's Connell Parr, Vice-Chancellor's Research Fellow in the Humanities at Northumbria University and an expert in unionist politics. On the other side of the conflict were the nationalists and the republicans, those people who believe Northern Ireland should never have been separated from the Republic of Ireland back in 1921 and that the North should become part of a united Ireland once again. Both the Republican and Nationalists in Northern Ireland both want to achieve, uh, but believe in a united Ireland. That ultimately Ireland should be united and independent from the United Kingdom. That's John Morrison, Director of the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. The Irish Republican movement believed that this could be achieved through paramilitary means, as well as what we're seeing now is their political negotiations and the political aims, but that they believed in the legitimacy of armed struggle. Whereas the nationalist community, while believing that ultimately there should be a united Ireland, they believed that there shouldn't be. There was no legitimacy for armed struggle, that this could be achieved 
through peaceful protest, that this could be achieved through political political aims. When we talk about the Republican and nationalist communities, these are largely the Catholic communities, the Catholic populations of Northern Ireland as well. Although it's not like it was never a conflict over um, religion, but they were the identifiers of the communities. We'll be hearing more from Connell and John a bit later in the episode. It was a long struggle to get these two communities to agree to a peace deal on Good Friday 1998, and at many points it had looked like an intractable conflict with no end point. For much of the 20th century, the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, had fought to get the British out of Northern Ireland. Then, in 1994, its leaders agreed to a ceasefire. A few weeks later, an umbrella group for loyalist paramilitaries also announced a ceasefire. But the peace was fragile, and negotiations towards a wider agreement stalled in the years that followed. Yet in April 1998, an agreement was finally reached. It would establish a path for paramilitary groups from both sides to get rid of their weapons and for prisoners to be released. It would also pave the way for power sharing between Unionists and Republicans and see the establishment of a number of cross-border institutions between the North and South. But 20 years later, the peace settlement in Northern Ireland is under strain, as Laura Hood, the Conversations Politics Editor, found out. The 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement has not turned out to be an unadulterated celebration. Various points of contention mean there is currently little room for complacency about the future of the deal. Northern Ireland's devolved government, a power-sharing arrangement between Unionists and Republicans, has collapsed. Despite numerous rounds of talks, the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin have been unable to reach a compromise on a handful of disputed policy matters, leaving Northern Ireland without a government for more than a year. And with the DUP holding the keys to power in Westminster as a result of its deal with Theresa May's minority government, it doesn't look like power-sharing is coming back any time soon. Meanwhile, Brexit presents a circle that simply cannot be squared. The UK has voted to leave the EU, and the DUP staunchly supports Brexit, although let's remember that Northern Ireland voted to remain in the referendum. That raises serious questions about what to do with the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Thanks to the Good Friday Agreement, that border has become virtually non-existent, allowing seamless travel and trade on the island of Ireland. But once one part of that island leaves the EU, what becomes of the border? This was a major topic of debate when Britain's political science community met for their annual conference recently. That's where I met Fergal Cochrane, Professor of International Conflict Analysis at the University of Kent. Fergal, in, in terms of the original Good Friday Agreement, what are the main implications of Brexit? I'd say there's two issues. One is that um, nobody saw Brexit coming, obviously, in 1998. People were really concerned about how they would get on with one another. Checks and balances within the institutions. They didn't, so Brexit's arrived a bit like a meteorite, out of the blue, and is problematised and complicated issues to do with the final destination constitutionally of Northern Ireland, the people's identities. And the Good Friday Agreement allowed us to park that. The problem with Brexit is that very physically, if there's a border, it's going to emphasise the Britishness and the Irishness of the island. And that's why a lot of nationalists and the Irish government are very much concerned, and some unionists actually, are very concerned about exactly how the border is going to be characterised if there is going to be one. Ireland changed its constitution on the back of the Good Friday Agreement 
they might eventually come back and say, well, hang on a second, guys. The deal has been wedged on by the people that have pulled us out of the EU. And there were, of course, safeguards in the human rights legislation moving into the agreement that are now potentially not going to apply to the United Kingdom. So the EU is sort of enmeshed in the text of the Good Friday Agreement. So if the Irish government say you're unpicking the text, they would be within their rights to say that the referendum that we held is now null and void. We're going to have another one. Uh, I think it's highly likely they would, but technically they might. Well, I spoke to a, a journalist once and I asked him what's the most useful thing about as a nationalist journalist and I asked him what's the most useful thing about the Good Friday Agreement. This was about 15 years after. And he said, the motorway. So it wasn't the north-south bodies, it wasn't anything to do with the legal apparatus of the Good Friday Agreement. It was simply that this is something that changes people's everyday lifestyle. They can live in Dublin and they can work in Belfast and vice versa. And of course this is what the Irish government and Sinn Féin and the SDLP are concerned about, and nationalist people, is that even what's sold as a solution as a terms of a, a totally remote border, will gradually, the apparatus of the border will start collecting around the physical aspects of the border. And there's other ideas such as taking the border away from the actual frontier, putting checks in certain sheds somewhere that really haven't been defined. Uh, but the practicalities of doing that are equally problematic. I mean, these places could be vandalised. I'm not sure who wants to be taken off into a, you know, a warehouse and checked. I can see a lot of problems with that, even if it's um, sporadically done. And then, of course, there'll be a profiling issue. Who is exactly being stopped? Are they from number of plates from certain towns? Is it border towns? Smuggling, how's that going to be dealt with? Because it's going to be fantastic for smugglers, potentially. That was Fergal Cochrane talking to me from the sidelines of the Political Studies Association annual conference in Cardiff. There he conducted a series of interviews with academics to mark 20 years of the Good Friday Agreement. You can hear the results of that project on their website at psa.ac.uk. To go into a bit more detail on this issue now, I have Katie Haywood, a political sociologist from Queen's University Belfast. Hi, Laura. And David Mitchell, Assistant Professor of Conflict Resolution and Reconciliation at Trinity College Dublin. Hi there. So perhaps the best way to begin talking about the current situation is to have a look back at the past. What did the border look like before the Good Friday Agreement and how did it actually affect daily life in Ireland and Northern Ireland? David? Well, um, now I'm in my mid-30s, but I can still remember the border clearly from the early 90s because I lived on one side and my extended family all lived on the other side so I would cross it very regularly in County Tyrone and County Fermanagh and I mean the current debate is about physical infrastructure at the border and I suppose the reason people are so worried is because there was such a lot of physical infrastructure when you crossed the border. I mean I can remember Straban Lifford crossing, you had three huge military watchtowers the cars would sort of weave between them. You would be pulled over, soldiers would look in the boot, guns would be pointed, there would be queues and so on. So it was an extremely sort of militarized and very much an, an established permanent infrastructure that was there. And that is all vanished now, which is terrific. But that's why there's such worry, I think, about the return of anything at the border. And what does the border look like currently? Is there absolutely nothing there at all? Uh, there's nothing. I mean, I came back from Dublin last night. There's no 
sense of, of a border at all. At, at Newry, you're sort of distracted by the lovely alpine scenery and you've no sense of, of anything. I think there is a small uh, sign saying welcome to Northern Ireland, something like that, but there's really no sense of a border at all. As we mark the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, there are a lot of questions about the future, uh, particularly when it comes to the border. How is Brexit affecting the terms of the Good Friday Agreement? Katie? So the joint report issued by the EU and the UK in December 2017 noted that the operation of the Good Friday Agreement could be affected by Brexit. And that's really because the Good Friday Agreement was drawn up in the context of shared membership of the EU by the UK and Ireland. So a lot of the assumptions about how cross-border cooperation could happen, both north-south on the island of Ireland and between Britain and Ireland, that was sort of assumed that that would happen in the context of common EU membership. So if you consider now with the prospect of Brexit that the UK and Ireland will be on different trajectories, going in different directions, then that fundamentally affects uh, the operation of the 98 Agreement. And that centres very much around the issue of the border too because you will have goods that need to flow over the border, you'll have people that need to flow over the border and different regulations that apply to either side of the border. Yeah, so the question of the movement of goods is just one aspect, of course. So the single market, which has enabled the four freedoms, movement of people, goods, services, etc., that's very much been an important context for the 98 Agreement. But as you say, there's also regulations that have been harmonised or matched in many areas that relate to continued north-south cooperation. So the concern about the operation of the 98 Agreement isn't just about trade, but it's also about north-south cooperation. And these are in areas of mutual benefit. So questions of specialised health services, for example, um, agriculture, environmental protection, transport, all of these areas could be undermined by the UK and Ireland having um, different regulations. We're now a year into the Brexit negotiations. So what are the proposals currently on the table for the border? So the joint report in December set out three possibilities, really. Uh, the first one is that the UK and the EU have a free trade agreement that manages to avoid any particular problems relating to the Irish border, particularly, of course, for the movement of goods. Um, now, although both the UK and Ireland see that as being ideal, it's very unlikely that that's going to be possible. Um, the second scenario is that of specific solutions for Northern Ireland, Ireland. This is more likely because it would enable it to cover north-south cooperation in those areas such as services and um, environmental protection and, and other areas that are important for north-south cooperation. And then there's the third scenario. So this in the joint report is talking about full alignment between the UK and the EU and thus avoiding difficulties in relation to the single market and the customs union. We've seen an EU proposal now as to what that might look like and this is the so-called backstop option. So that is that Northern Ireland effectively remains in the single market and also is considered part of the customs territory of the EU. This has been rejected by Theresa May, really because it would entail 
therefore a customs border down the Irish Sea. So at this moment in time, we're waiting for alternative proposals to come forward from the UK government as to how they might manage to have effectively a soft Irish border despite going towards having a hard Brexit. And so the proposal put forward by the EU in the draft withdrawal agreement is really about a sort of minimalist interpretation of how you can manage to avoid having a hard Irish border and protect the operation of the 1998 agreement without necessarily having full alignment between the UK and the EU. If they reject that, it's up to the UK to say how they see it possible to um, avoid having the hard Irish border at the same time as having fairly hard Brexit. So is a hard border not necessarily in and of itself a contravention of the Good Friday Agreement? The, the whole thrust of the Good Friday Agreement was that the border was being taken out of everyday political argument. And the idea was that we could park the border question and get on with sort of living together. Uh, the, the problem is that Brexit sort of reinserts the border into politics in Northern Ireland. It kind of uh, churns up the consensus that has sort of underpinned the agreement for the last 20 years. Uh, and that is that most Northern Irish nationalists were reasonably happy with the situation. Um, they were happy with the Good Friday Agreement. They were happy with a soft border that made travel and business easier and that made Ireland feel united, even if the reality of separate jurisdictions was still in place. Um, but a hard border would psychologically re redraw a line between peoples in Ireland. And if it made Ireland feel more divided again, then this could push a lot of Northern Irish nationalists towards wanting a united Ireland in the short term rather than as a kind of long-term aspiration. But we are in a very difficult situation. And really, it needs to be stressed, nobody could have possibly imagined or envisaged Brexit uh, 20 years ago in 1998. Uh, it, it was just assumed that the British and Irish states were partners in the European Union and that they were, as sort of Katie said, on a sort of shared trajectory into the future and, and now Brexit sort of pushes the two states into separate paths and it, it remains to be seen how all this is going to be resolved. Does the agreement therefore need rewriting with Brexit in mind? I think that's the last thing we need to be honest. Right. Um, if you're thinking about the position of um, the negotiations and how difficult that's been not just for unionism and nationalism at the moment but also Britain and Ireland, the British-Irish relations. This is why we need to reinforce the agreement and uphold the agreement rather than risk undermining it. Because I think the uncertainty that's present in Northern Ireland is, is damaging to the peace process, as David says. So rather than putting the agreement into question, we should actually continually assert that um, this is the foundation for the peace process and nothing should challenge that at all. I think that's definitely true and I think that obviously at the Brexit referendum and in the minds of people who voted for Brexit, the Irish issue, the Good Friday Agreement, was not anywhere near the forefront of their minds and in a sense uh, the Good Friday Agreement has uh, emerged as, as something of a nemesis to Brexit. I think they, they're not only sort of legally opposed in some senses but also philosophically opposed. 
uh, in terms of these big questions of national identity and borders and, and transnational re relations. Um, so it's interesting how how the agreement and, and Brexit have uh, have clashed, and I think the Brexiteers have gradually but slowly sort of uh, realised the the preciousness of what was agreed in Ireland and also how it may challenge the kind of hard Brexit that they want. Just one little tiny thing. So building on the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, um, created a, an opportunity or a, a means by which the Irish government could have involvement in Northern Ireland. And there was meaningful collaboration and cooperation um, between uh, North and South on the island of Ireland. So part of the problem as a result of the Brexit discussions in the UK has been the consideration of Northern Ireland's future merely as a domestic concern for the UK. Mm. And um, actually Brexit poses a problem because it makes it more difficult for that Irish dimension to be upheld. So another complicating factor as we mark this anniversary is the current situation in Northern Ireland's devolved administration. What did the agreement actually say about power sharing in the first place, David? Well, the agreement envisaged uh, power sharing between unionists and nationalists. So it created a government which did not have a, an opposition in the Westminster style, but all the parties of sufficient strength had a right to be part of this grand inclusive coalition. And it had to be supported by a, a sufficient number of unionists and nationalists what's called parallel consent. And I suppose this was a rule to try and avoid the kind of political exclusion that had characterized Northern Ireland uh, in the past. Uh, and this has worked on and off for the last 20 years. But the problem that we're now in is that the largest unionists and nationalist parties uh, can't and won't share power anymore. And we don't have the option of the other parties, say, coming together to form uh, another government um, because it wouldn't have sufficient unionist and nationalist support. Um, so that's why we're in this limbo. What's actually happened in Stormont? Why has the arrangement collapsed? Well, the immediate trigger was a, a financial scandal, uh, the Renewable Heating Incentive Scheme, which was this botched government scheme which came to light in late 2016 and had been presided over by Arlene Foster in one of our earlier posts. She's the DUP leader and then First Minister. And uh, Sinn Féin walked out of government because uh, Arlene Foster wouldn't step aside during an inquiry into the RHI scheme. In the last year of negotiations to restore power sharing, the talk centred not on RHI but on an Irish Language Act and despite months and months of talking about an Irish Language Act, uh, these talks finally collapsed in February. Republicans in Sinn Féin are demanding an Irish Language Act to protect and promote the Irish language. But unionists are refusing an Irish Language Act because they think that it will damage the, the solely British character of Northern Ireland. So it seems the whole thing has collapsed really on a, a symbolic identity issue and that's the impasse that we're in now. Does this stalemate mean that the Good Friday Agreement no longer stands? Well um, it's a good question and there's certainly been some commentary that the agreement is dead 
uh, or that the agreement has outlived its usefulness. But the reality is that power sharing is only one part of the agreement. It's a very important part. It's, it's perhaps the centerpiece of the agreement, but there were many other parts of the agreement which have now been irreversibly implemented. So take prisoner releases, the destruction of paramilitary weapons, uh, new equality and human rights institutions, the reform of the police, uh, all that is implemented. And so to that extent, we're, we're, we're living in the world still created by the Good Friday Agreement, even though power sharing is uh, is not there. But having said all that, we are in a particularly threatening situation, I think, because if the agreement does require unionists and nationalists to share power and they simply can't do it for whatever reason, then we are in something of a, of a limbo. David's explained it very well. Uh, the Brexit context is important, I think, because it emphasised the differences between unionists and nationalists because it's put the border back to the forefront of people's minds. And more particularly, it's put the British and Irish governments on opposite sides of a negotiating table. And in the past, we've had lots of problems in Northern Ireland since 1998, lots of challenges to the agreement, lots of difficulties in power sharing. But the way those have been overcome in the past have been through British and Irish governments speaking with one voice uh, and urging mainly the, the DUP and Sinn Féin to, to come to an agreement and facilitating that. And I think the fact that the British and Irish governments are now, as I say, on the opposite sides of the negotiating table, and there's this idea that Northern Ireland has to make a choice or is being pulled between being closer to Britain or being closer to Ireland, this just makes it much more difficult as a context to find agreement between unionism and nationalism. The agreement, of course, was drawn up in a very different context. So we had the moderate parties, the centrist parties of the SDLP and the Ulster Unionist Party as the, as the leading parties behind the agreement. Obviously it involved the others too, but it was very much an agreement between centrist parties. And it wasn't conceived that we'd have a situation in which Sinn Féin and the DUP would be the largest parties in Northern Ireland. We have a very different context now. But at the same time, in many ways, there has been this centre ground created, not necessarily in political terms, but in terms of um, attitudes and political preferences. If you look at the survey data from the Northern Ireland Life and Times, as David said, nationalists were quite happy with Northern Ireland having devolved status within the UK up to a certain point. You know, it was working, and the same for unionists as well. And that's been a remarkable achievement of the 90s agreement. And it's on that sort of centrist ground that we need to think about the future and, and prepare for the future, especially thinking about the configuration of the border after Brexit. Does the agreement itself um, and its history provide any inspiration for a way out of this current situation? Yeah, um, I think it does. I suppose there are two ways of looking at the feelings of the agreement. One is to blame its its provisions uh, and suggest that these are, are misguided or unhelpful in some way. But another explanation is to look at public and political attitudes. Uh, and I think that's where the real problem lies. I mean, if you go back to 1998 and uh, read um, the preamble of the agreement, it states that, you know, implementation was always going to be extremely difficult. There were ambiguities and there were silences in the agreement. 
And the only way the agreement was going to work was if people and parties implemented the agreement in good faith and were committed to an ongoing dialogue. And so the preamble says things like the parties dedicate themselves to building mutual trust, to reconciliation. It acknowledges their differences, but but they commit themselves to uh, implementing the agreement for the sake of everybody's futures. And I think that if we can call it the spirit of the agreement as opposed to the letter, that's, that spirit of accommodation has been manifested on and off over the last 20 years, but I think has uh, not been as strong as it, it could have been. So there are always going to be all these obstacles, but I think parties now need to return to that spirit of the agreement. Um, thank you very much for joining me, David Mitchell. Thanks, Laura. And Katie Hayward. Thanks, William. Laura Hood there, the Conversations Politics Editor, talking to Katie Hayward from Queen's University Belfast and David Mitchell from Trinity College Dublin. When the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998, it was a settlement to promote peace, to unify the country and to stop the violence. But 20 years on, education is still heavily segregated – Around 90% of children in Northern Ireland go to either a Catholic or a Protestant school. Most state schools are predominantly Protestant, while the majority of Catholic children attend schools maintained by the Catholic Church. Things are starting to change, however, largely thanks to an educational programme that aims to build better relations between communities. Holly Squire has a story. School days. The saying goes they're the best days of your life, and for many children growing up across the UK, this may well be the case. But unlike children living in Wales, Scotland or England, the majority of children growing up in Northern Ireland go to either a Catholic or Protestant faith school. This means that a child in Northern Ireland can go their entire childhood without ever really having a proper conversation with anyone from the other community. Joanne Hughes from the School of Education at Queen's University Belfast explains more. The jury's out in terms of whether or not separate schools actually contribute to um, hostilities or the perpetuation of conflict. There, There are a number of research projects which have shown that separate schooling can contribute to stereotyping and to negative responses to the other. A few years after the signing of the Belfast Agreement, we had children who had no experience of the other and actually had very negative attitudes towards them who were in a separate school. But this segregated education system isn't necessarily anything new. In fact, it has long been a feature of education in Northern Ireland, as Tony Gallagher, Professor of Education at Queen's, explains. For historical reasons, we've always had separate schools for Protestants and Catholics from the 1830s, 1840s onwards. There have been official attempts to try and create a common school system in the 1840s and in the 1920s, but neither was successful and the churches have always had quite a significant role within the schools. Tony explains how during the years of political violence in Northern Ireland, many looked to schools to contribute to reconciliation. And while a variety of interventions were attempted throughout those years, there was little evidence that they had produced any real change. The peace process provided an opportunity for renewed efforts. And this is eventually where the idea of shared education came in, 
providing collaborative networks of Protestant, Catholic and integrated schools where teachers and pupils move between classrooms, buildings and boundaries to take classes and share experiences. Uh, one of the bizarre things after the ceasefires was that there was an increase in the number of so-called peace lines dividing communities because even though the violence had stopped, people still lived with a sense of fear. And so there's actually more peace walls after the ceasefire than there had been before that. So it was clear that if we didn't do something active to try and create connections within society, then it was almost like the default condition was to keep moving apart. So we all work in education. Schools are very, very important civic institutions. All young people go to them. They, they are everywhere. Uh, we started to think about could we connect the schools, create connections there, which would build bridges between the young people, between the teachers, between the parents, and maybe uh, between communities, and use what historically had been sort of a set of institutions that had kept people apart to provide a mechanism for building bridges between communities. So the idea with shared education is that whole parts of the curriculum can be delivered together, with Catholic and Protestant schools meeting on a regular basis and engaging in joint classes or activities. And the aim is that eventually every school in Northern Ireland will operate in this way. But is it working? Back to Joanne again. The norm now is shared education, but we do need to be addressing issues of division. And I think there's some way to go on that if this is to be truly socially transformative. And that's the area that we're working in at the minute. We know from some of the qualitative work that there are kind of hierarchies of things that people are comfortable talking about. We're kind of okay talking about religion and we're kind of okay talking about culture, but we're much less comfortable with disadvantage, discrimination and political aspirations of the different groups. And so that's an area that our work has moved into then exploring, you know, how can we do that better in such a way that kids do develop that kind of critical thinking and ability to understand not just the other, but the structural and systemic aspects of conflict and its causes. So it seems that although there's still some way to go, Shared education is starting to make a real difference to the lives of children living in Northern Ireland. Laura Taylor, who's a lecturer in the School of Psychology, also at Queen's University, has been looking at the impact of shared education and the effect it can have on families. Now, Laura's research has found that while parents can play a key role in helping to make shared education a success, many families don't necessarily feel fully equipped in knowing how to help their child make sense of their new relationships with children from other communities. I'll let Laura explain more. The families in general are very supportive of shared education. They're really interested in learning more about it. But one of the things that they've shared with us is they feel like they need more support from the schools in terms of how to respond to the young people when they come home and say, oh, I've met someone from the other community, or we talked about this new idea in school. Parents don't feel like they have the capacity that they want to respond to these sensitive issues around intergroup relations. And so one of the things they've suggested is that schools could provide additional support for families that are engaging in shared education for how to talk to young people when they come home from school. They don't often Often have the opportunity to meet parents from the other community. And so if the shared education activities could be extended to be inclusive of families, so for example, thinking in the after school hours or 
if a shared education, for example, is occurring in the arts and they have a project that they could put on and invite parents from both sides, those are the kinds of activities that our parents have expressed that they would be interested in doing. And they think it would reinforce and deepen the relationships their children are forming in the classroom and allow them to start forging those new relationships with parents that they might not have had the opportunity to meet previously. Laura believes that when it comes to shared education and its wider impacts, the younger the child is when they first engage, the bigger the difference it can make to their lives. What we found in some research that we've done is very early on, so as early as age five, but increasing with age, so by age 11, young people are very aware in Northern Ireland what their own in-group symbols are, what in-group names are, and in particular, if they perceive there is more conflict, they're able to identify in-group symbols and names at a much earlier age. So one of the important things to recognize is that even though Northern Ireland is a context where you can't necessarily see the ethnic difference between the two conflicting groups, young people are socialized very early on to know the difference, and that affects their attitudes and behaviors. And as Laura explains, all of this can help to contribute to long-term change. One of the other things that we've studied with teenagers, so these are kids between 14 and 16 years old, in both interfaced and non-interfaced schools, is that both the amount of contact they have and the quality of contact they have with the other group affects their peace-building attitudes. And what that means is peace-building attitudes are the degree to which they support peace-building initiatives. So creating symbols like the Peace Bridge in Derry, Londonderry, or creating mixed sports teams. One of the things that those peace-building attitudes are important for is later participation and civic engagement. So over the course of time, what we've been able to see is that the contact they have with the other community changes their attitudes, and those attitudes over time change their behaviors. So we want to make sure that we're supporting intergroup contact, whether it's through shared education or other after-school initiatives, to have long-term support for both peace building and these active civic behaviors that are engaged with changing their social worlds. But of course, this isn't just something that's exclusive to Northern Ireland. There are many places all around the world where neighbouring communities who live side by side are effectively living separate lives. Which is why some of these lessons learnt in Northern Ireland schools are now being applied to other areas of the world, such as Israel and Macedonia. Back to Tony. In Israel, for example, there are now quite a large number of schools, dozens of schools, uh, Jewish and Arab schools that are working together. We're doing work with school principals in Jerusalem, which includes not just Jewish and Arab schools, but also Orthodox Jewish schools. And obviously there, there are issues there around language, there are issues around the, the difference in position between the two communities, which are quite important, and all the political challenges in a place like that. So it's really interesting uh, working in those contexts. It's also for our schools in Northern Ireland, I think, really important that they understand that people in other parts of the world like that are really, really interested in the sort of work that they're doing and seeing this, the schools in Northern Ireland as providing a really interesting model of how you can deal with some of these issues. Uh, that's one of the ways which helps to energize and affirm the work that's going on in, in Northern Ireland. We're not saying we have a template which you can just drop into another country, but it is one of those ways in which we are, I think, uh, our, our young people and our teachers are providing a really important example to others about how you can reimagine old problems and address them in really interesting and innovative ways. 
Back in Northern Ireland, it's not just the children who are benefiting from these efforts to bridge the gaps. As evidence shows, parents and wider communities are also coming together in ways which have never happened before. And in this way, it's clear that education has the power to be about so much more than just spelling tests or learning times tables. Holly Squire there, the Conversations Education Editor. In the final part of this episode, we're going back to hear the stories of the people involved in making the Good Friday Agreement happen. What was it that brought the UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, the Irish Taoiseach Bertie Ahern and leaders from unionist and republican political parties all together to make an agreement? In a roll call of the peacemakers, our producer Gemma Ware asked four academics to help explain what motivated the key characters in the negotiations. Our first key player is a politician called David Trimble. Back in 1998, he was leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, the main political party that wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK. Trimble had risen to the head of the party three years earlier, replacing its long-standing leader, James Molyneux, and was initially seen as somewhat of a hardliner. Here's Connell Parr from Northumbria to explain. It was surprising to many people that Trimble would be the person who would do the heavy lifting and move unionism towards an accommodation with Irish nationalism, which kind of comes to fruition with the Good Friday Agreement. That historic attempt to reconcile the competing claims of Irish nationalism and Ulster unionism. His own background was more middle class and established. He's a lawyer, he's well educated. Been at Queen's University and he'd been in the law department and he was regarded as, as a brain within unionism in a way which in which there are considered not too many brains in the history of Ulster unionism. In the 70s, he'd been around the loyalist elements in the sense that they knew him, they respected him, and he had those associations, which he, at that stage, cultivated. And he's solidly unionist. There's no reason to believe that Trimble would show the kind of courage and, and leadership that he shows in the run-up to April 1998. Trimble would have had a number of constituency meetings with Ulster Unionist organisations and also members of the Orange Order, who he was a member of himself. So the Orange Order is a brethren institution which comes into existence to essentially defend Protestant values and you can only become a member of the Orange Order if you are a Protestant. The Orange Order is, it declares its hand quite early. It comes out strongly against the Good Friday Agreement. So Trimble has a, a big barrier. He doesn't convince people. And I think the thing is that we do also have to say with Trimble, like with all political leaders, that he has failings and he has limitations. He's quite a kind of aloof man in many ways. He's quite cold. He's not got a, very much of a sense of humour, which you need to survive in Northern Irish politics. And so he doesn't always win people over. But he tried. He tried to lead and to try and provide some kind of a support as a leader of unionism for the agreement. You know, he, he's aware of the problems and he's aware of the difficulties in terms of the Good Friday Agreement's provisions in terms of prisoner releases, where within two years, all paramilitary prisoners are going to be released. And in terms of decommissioning is really his main red line. Decommissioning is the putting beyond use of arms and guns from both sides, but especially from, obviously in the unionist case, in terms of Republicans and the IRA, that's the main be all and end all provision. And once the provisional IRA doesn't do that very quickly, it takes a long time for them to do that. It takes them until the, to the summer of 2005 to decommission. That's what does for Trimble. 
his own red line is no guns, no government. You know, if, if you if you have guns, you're not entitled to be in government. And in doing that, he can't then sell the agreement that he himself is backing because he set that own red line himself. So that was his own albatross. He set up his own albatross in doing that. Despite this, after the elections that followed the Good Friday Agreement, Trimble became the first minister of Northern Ireland, a post he would hold until 2002. He now sits in the House of Lords and has become, according to Connell, a much less progressive politician than he once was. A few months after the Good Friday Agreement, Trimble won the Nobel Peace Prize, jointly, with our next figure, John Hume, the leader of the Social Democratic and Labour Party, the main nationalist political party in Northern Ireland. Here's John Morrison from the University of East London again. What you see with the life of John Hume is he was committed to peace. He was committed to bringing about peaceful solutions and hugely passionate about it. He sacrificed so much of his life to try and achieve this. John Hume was the key figure during this period. For a long time, he was there during civil rights protests of the, the mid to late 1960s. He would continue on in the mid-1970s. He wanted civil rights for the Catholic population. Hume never, never agreed with armed conflict. He was never a member of any Republican movement. Um, he was a nationalist. He took a brave step in the mid-1980s to organise talks with Jerry Adams, who at the time, while we're used to, to hearing Jerry Adams' voice the whole time now, at the time, like, his voice was banned from, uh, from the airwaves because he was seen, and rightly seen, he would, wouldn't admit it himself, but rightly seen as a key figure within the IRA as well as Sinn Féin, responsible for some absolute atrocities. So it was a brave move for Hume when there wasn't largely support on the ground for sitting down and negotiating with people like Adams to go and have these in private, in secret negotiations to try and bring Irish republicanism, to try and bring the provisional IRA away from armed conflict away from paramilitarism. But he, his role was also there, not just to convince Adams and McGuinness, uh, although that was part of it, but to also put forward what the nationalist community wanted, what they wanted to achieve, what they felt would be appropriate and would be right to come from these negotiations. So Hume continued on in this role to try and um, really get a foundation for peace. And he was one of the, the main actors in laying that foundation. He played, played a huge role. And, and a, he's a man of peace. A man of peace. That's not a moniker that can be attached to all of those involved in the peace process, particularly our next two figures, Martin McGuinness and Gerry Adams. Here's John Morrison again to explain their journey from members of the provisional IRA to leaders of Sinn Féin. So Martin McGuinness would be from Derry. He wouldn't have had the same Republican family and the same Republican upbringing that Gerry Adams had. Both of them joined what was to become the Provisionals around the same time, the late 60s, early 70s. And they were joining around the time of that major split. From the very beginning, they became recognised as potential leadership figures. In the early 1970s, they were actually brought on board in secret negotiations with the British government at a very early stage in their position within the Irish Republican movement. McGuinness would have been seen more as the paramilitary leader, and he fully admitted that when he was alive, that he was a leading member of the provisional IRA. And he actually 
gained some backhanded respect from the British military who would say that if he was uh, on their side, he would have been a, a very well-decorated general and so on. But they both took over the old guard leadership of the Irish Republican movement really in the early to mid-1980s at that stage where you had a politicisation of the movement. They took over from the old guard leadership of Rory O'Brodick and Dahi O'Connell, who were based in the Republic of Ireland. But McGuinness and Adams were based in Northern Ireland, although they would never use the name Northern Ireland. They would say the North of Ireland. They were gradually making changes and wanted to make sure that they had the support of the old guard leadership as well as the, the new guard. They had the support of the paramilitary as well as the political before taking over. While we're talking about the Good Friday Agreement, I think the most important negotiations for them actually happen internally within their movement. If they weren't successful in achieving acceptance internally within the Irish Republican movement, they could never have come to the table. But for these personal actors, for McGuinness and Adams, I feel that they knew that this was, as they would say, a long war strategy, that they were, during the 70s and 80s, engaged in what they would call the military phase of this long war but they recognized and some would say that this is with hindsight that people are saying this that they recognized that there needed to be another stage that they were moving into another stage they would still have considered this as part of that long war strategy but in order to get to the final united ireland that they want to achieve they needed to enter into a political stage the, the number one thing that they always said is that there couldn't be decommissioning as a precondition. That was a huge bumpy road. And the way it was negotiated in the end is that they said that, OK, decommissioning isn't a precondition, but the agreement was that a, a move towards decommissioning, an intent to eventually decommission was a precondition. And actually, when you look at the interviews with Adams, McGuinness and others, they give kudos to the British government for this. They said it was very clever political negotiations, that it was an important stage and it was a neat solution to what was a tense problem there. So we come now to the nitty-gritty of negotiations, the job of getting people around a table to hammer out an agreement. And it was the Americans who helped that to happen. Here's Liam Kennedy, director of the Clinton Institute for American Studies at University College Dublin, to explain the role of President Bill Clinton in the Good Friday Agreement. Why does President-to-be William Jefferson Clinton have an interest in Northern Ireland and, as president, a degree of interest that will bring him to create political shockwaves in Washington and in London and in Dublin as he intervenes in that conflict in a way that no one really had fully foreseen? So the key piece of the preparation for him doing that comes just prior to him becoming president in 1992. And at that time, an Irish-American lobby group had been formed, and they approached him. They were called Americans for a New Irish Agenda. And they approached the then governor, Bill Clinton, who wasn't a favorite, as you may recall, to be president of the United States. He would become the president, but they approached him in April of 1992, when he had just won the New York primary, and they asked him to attend an event called the Irish American Presidential Forum in New York. And at that particular meeting, the then-to-be President Clinton promised that if he was elected, 
he would create the office of a U.S. peace envoy to Northern Ireland. And he made other pledges as well that would help bring about peace in Northern Ireland. All of that made the British government quite nervous at that point in time, and they were not keen on the idea of a future President Clinton, partly for that reason. This was a president who would perhaps actively intervene in the Northern Ireland conflict. After all, up to this point, it's been a policy of non-intervention. So even before President Clinton becomes president, he's giving signs that he will intervene. And of course, eventually he does. There are several elements to it. That, that is the bigger question. Why does he intervene? I think the, the first one has to be political self-calculation. Uh, he realized that the Irish vote, although it's a, a barely tangible or coherent block of a vote, we do know that Irish Americans tend to vote, white middle-class folks, they get out and they do vote. And there's a lot of them. At the 2010 national census in the United States, 34.5 million Americans ticked the Irish heritage box. That's a lot of folks. So there's part of the context which is vote. The other parts are that, first of all, it's important to point out that President Clinton does not have a very strong blood relationship to Ireland, not a very strong genealogical relationship. There is one. It comes through his mother's heritage. Her grandmother was from County Fermanagh in Northern Ireland, the name of Cassidy. So there is something there. But it's not a very strong part of his heritage. So it's quite an interesting question to pose. Why would he get involved? I think there are a couple of other reasons. One is that President Clinton was really the first president of the United States who wasn't not part of the Second World War generation. He wasn't drawn into that special relationship quite in the same way as the presidents who came before him. He was open to a new form of thinking about the relationship to the United Kingdom. Another reason is the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War meant a new form of foreign policy was emerging. Thinking about how to utilize free markets, thinking about how to utilize what was called democracy promotion as a way of really responding to a radically different international system at that point in time. So the, the geopolitical chessboard had shifted very radically, and there was new thinking abroad. And I suppose one other reason one could mention is that I think when he did get involved, he became really genuinely, passionately interested in creating change. And just as importantly, he thought he could do it. There was a sense that, that Clinton perhaps dragged his heels a little bit around Northern Ireland when he became president. But a year in, he did begin to act. In 1994, President Clinton decided that he would grant a visa to Jerry Adams, the head of Sinn Féin, allowing him to enter the United States. Why is that important? Well, first of all, Adams had been refused a visa. The British were opposed to him getting a visa. Most of Washington was opposed to it because he was seen as a representative of the IRA. However, people around Clinton explained to him that if he was to give Adams a visa, Adams would receive a degree of political recognition that would allow him to become a key political actor who in the long term might bring the IRA across the line uh, into a peaceful process. So this was strategic, it was visionary, and it was very risky, but Clinton decided to do it. And when I said earlier that he, he changed the approach of the United States to the process of peacemaking in Northern Ireland, that's one of the most significant things he did. Liam says the second significant thing that Clinton did was to appoint George Mitchell as US Special Envoy for Northern Ireland. Here's Mitchell's story. Mitchell's was really a quite a canny choice. You know, he was a very seasoned, very senior senator. He was well known to Clinton already. He was someone who had had to, a Speaker of the House, oversee a great deal of conflict. And so this was something that he seemed quite well suited to. 
All of that said, it was it was an incredible challenge. He was dealing with tribal politics in a small part of, of Europe about which he did not know a great deal at the time. But if there's one simple reason for why he held forth, it was patience, incredible patience. In a few of the talks that he's given, he's being asked, of course, the question, how did you manage to bring all of these very different views to the table and then get them to a peace agreement? And one of his answers is, I outlistened them. Uh, and, and I think that's a skill. He absolutely cleared his schedule. He made himself very available, not just in terms of being physically present in Northern Ireland, but being available to the Northern Irish leaders uh, or the representatives at, at all times. They knew he could be at the end of the phone at any point in time. They also know that he would listen to them, that he would give them time to express their views. So he was building very, very slowly a degree of trust amongst community leaders where there isn't a lot of that to go around outside of the community. And so he had to learn quite a lot about how that tribal politics works and think about how does he deal with it, how does he manage it. And he learned that he had to not just listen, but he had to be very inclusive. He couldn't just be inclusive of the core tribes. He had to go to the outreach. He had to recognize those voices who were going to continue to be dissident unless they were brought into the camp at a relatively early stage. So this deep inclusivity became part and parcel of how he approached the process. That and the fact that he spent so much time on the ground he had a young child at this time during this process. I think people were very respectful of the, of the time that he spent in the North. It's Mitchell's tenacity, I think, that really did finally get people across the line. The final cast members in our roll call are from closer to home. They are the key representatives of the governments with most at stake in reaching a peace settlement, Ireland and the UK. For this, we turn to Margaret O'Callaghan, reader in history and politics at Queen's University in Belfast. First up, it's Bertie Ahern, the Taoiseach, or leader, of the Republic of Ireland. Bertie Ahern is quite an unusual politician in southern terms. He was lower middle class Dublin. On the surface, he was not a particularly ideological politician. He was a very successful politician within his own Fianna Fáil party, and was viewed as somebody whose primary interest would have been the economy, dealing with trades unions, the day-to-day running of government. He's not rhetorically particularly strong. He's in no way an orator. He's not a particularly good speaker. Didn't seem to come over that well in interviews. But he was very popular and quite liked by the public. To some degree, he inherited the process that led to the Good Friday Agreement. This process had been going on since about 89 or 90. So Bertie Ahern didn't put this process together. He inherited this process when he became leader of Fianna Fáil when he was Taoiseach. So he's by no means the architect of the early stages of it. Once he saw the possibility of preserving or of keeping permanent ceasefire, he committed himself to the process. His best and most distinctive contribution is probably his ability to get on with almost all parties to the negotiations. He was also willing to stand down Sinn Féin and their demands that increased exponentially. He would have, like most Irish governments, come from a position of sympathy and understanding with the SDLP position as articulated in particular by John Hume. 
So John Hume would have been his steering light, but in the negotiations, he made a point of dealing with all parties, but in particular of trying to manage and restrain Sinn Féin's demands. On the night before the Good Friday Agreement was signed, it looked like nothing was going to happen. It looks like it was going to be failure. And to, if you like, add insult to injury, Sinn Féin appeared with a list of demands. As somebody said, there were 50 new demands. The interesting thing about Ahern is he's renowned as a negotiator. So while others might have just given up and said, given the magnitude of what they're looking for at the last minute, let's forget it, he systematically worked through point after point. So he's got formidable powers of concentration and application that were probably crucial in shoving Sinn Féin across the line at the final stages. Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution had been put in place in 1937 when the Constitution was enacted. Articles 2 and 3 basically claimed all of Ireland as the national territory and presupposed that the end of partition was an inevitable outcome of history. Removing Articles 2 and 3 had been talked about in the 1970s, had been talked about in the 1980s at the time of the Anglo-Irish Agreement, but to remove Articles 2 and 3 required a referendum because you cannot change any clause of the Irish Constitution without popular referendum. So for Ahern to decide to attempt to uh, remove Articles 2 and 3 was a very significant decision because he had to be able to sell it to his own electorate. In order to sell it to his own electorate, he had to persuade them that the Good Friday Agreement was a fair and stable means of establishing peace in Northern Ireland in the long term. And in return for that, he could persuade, if you like, the Irish electorate to give up what had been a kind of deep-rooted aspect of Irish political life since the foundation of the Irish state, that is the assumption that Ireland would not remain eternally partitioned. I suppose you have to think about the aims of the Irish government in the negotiations overall. First of all, they wanted peace on the island of Ireland because the violence in the north had affected the reputation of the whole island for decades. It also threatened to undermine the south. Secondly, Ahern's government saw themselves as some kind of protectors of the minority within Northern Ireland. If you were really honest about the Good Friday Agreement, from an Irish government nationalist point of view, what it did was delivered equality for Northern nationalists, it gave them protection, if you like, gave them equality, and meant that they were no longer, in their own eyes, second-class citizens in the territory which they occupied. Working closely with Ahern to reach an agreement was Tony Blair, the newly elected British Prime Minister. Here's Margaret again. When Tony Blair came in, when Labour won the 97 election, things seemed to change quite quickly. Everything appeared to have been held up under John Major, though a lot of groundwork had been done in the previous few years. Now, I suppose that groundwork could have gone nowhere had it not been for the commitment of Blair. 
Blair was quite curious in relation to Ireland. First of all, unlike most British politicians, he'd spent quite a lot of time in Donegal, I think when he was like 9, 10, 11, his early teenage years. So remarkably almost for a frontline British politician, he knew what Ireland was like. He'd been here, he'd met people from here. So he knew Ireland, he had a feel for it. He'd spent time here. He knew something about its history and the idea of proceeding with a major initiative on it appealed to him. Uh, we talk about the 98 agreement on the assumption that it was a foregone conclusion. Most of the recent research demonstrates that right up to the last few days, there was no certainty about it. I mean, what Blair did was he got into deal-making mode. If you read his autobiography, if you read Alistair Campbell, if you read the accounts of his right-hand people, you'll see that for Blair. This was above all a deal. Even though he knew Northern Ireland, even though he probably knew more of the history than most of the other parties, he was anxious to push aside the past and deal on a very pragmatic basis on ideas as they came up. I think his main red line was he was not going to compromise the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. So though he's seen as moderately sympathetic to Irish nationalism, I mean, he retained a profound commitment to maintaining the Union and to retaining Northern Ireland within that Union for as long as the majority of the population here wished for that. Unionists retrospectively are probably more critical of him than they would have been at the time. I mean, Blair was probably quite crucial in making it plain to somebody like David Trimble that this was the time to do a deal. Here was a Labour government with a massive majority committed to a kind of a settlement. I mean, what was somebody like Trimble to do? Put himself against the face of history. So to a certain extent, unionists always feel they were slightly coerced into the Good Friday Agreement or they were pressed into it. A lot in Blair's career is overshadowed, I suppose, by his decision on the Iraq war, and that affects how he's seen here as well as elsewhere. But I think for most people here, certainly for most nationalists, it's seen as a kind of heroic hour. It's seen as a major commitment of time and energy. But doing the groundwork for Blair was his Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Mo Molum. Here's Margaret again. She's precisely the kind of Labour politician that the more conservative end of unionism would have disliked. She was very much her own person. Uh, She was a feminist. She was modern in style. She was slightly bohemian and she spoke her mind. So nationalists had very high expectations of her. Now, she was probably a far more subtle politician than either the unionists or the nationalists realised. She's been slightly written out of the record of the Good Friday Agreement, partly because she died not that long afterwards. She was, of course, ill at the time. So many of the prime actors have either written their own accounts or had biographies written about her. And, of course, she is a victim of the usual propensity to write women out of the record. But the Good Friday deal would not have happened without Mo Molan. She was 
an intuitive politician. She set up excellent relationships with a broad spectrum of politicians. She was very good in the forum. But for her, the loyalist paramilitaries probably would never have signed up to ceasefire. Off her own bat, she crucially went into the prisons to meet them. And if she was not acceptable to what used to be called Fur Coat Brigade Unionism, certainly former loyalist paramilitaries found her a trustworthy person to whom to speak. In the final stages of the Good Friday Agreement, on the Thursday and the Friday, I think she played quite a crucial role in advising, cajoling and shifting things on. She definitely made a difference. She changed the weather. She altered the atmosphere. She got people to trust her. She moved the process on. She was particularly good with loyalist prisoners, with all of the nationalist parties, with the political representatives of loyalism, who were crucially important, without whom the whole thing could not have gone on. Her later replacement by Peter Mandelson, I suppose, represented a kind of Labour Party boys club desire to have ownership for all of it taken away from her. Everybody to some extent was pushed aside by the big boys, that is to say Ahern and Blair. But the, the representation of Mo Molan as marginal I think is wrong. When it came down to the wire in early April 1998, most of these key players were cooped up for days in the drab surroundings of the castle buildings on the Stormont Estate in Belfast. Even on the morning of Good Friday, it looked like an agreement wouldn't happen. But then, at the last minute, it did. And the rest is history. There are, of course, a multitude of others who helped get the agreement over the line. Connell Parr talks very highly, for example, of the role played by David Irvin, the leader of the Progressive Unionist Party, who were also involved in the talks and key to getting loyalists on board. Originally from a hardline loyalist background, Irvin had spent time in prison for possession of explosives, but came round to the idea of a political settlement. He uses his charisma, his ability with words, his language, and his sheer gift of the gab to be able to convince loyalists, some of those, those hardline loyalists, to back the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, there were those who disagreed with it. One was Ian Paisley, the hardline leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, who was never at the negotiating table, and who campaigned furiously against the Good Friday Agreement during the negotiations and in the referendum that followed. And there were dissident Republican groups, most notably a splinter group called the Real IRA, which saw the agreement as a betrayal of the goal of a united Ireland. In August 1998, just a few months after the Good Friday Agreement, it was behind the Omar bombing, which killed 29 people. But the Good Friday Agreement was backed by large majorities in a referendum on the 22nd of May 1998. 71% in Northern Ireland voted in favour of it, and 94% in the Republic of Ireland. For Margaret, it was a question of the right people being in positions of power at the right time. I think it was a remarkably lucky confluence of personality, particularly the three personalities of Clinton, Blair and Ahern, who had a rather extraordinary relationship. I can't think of any other three people in that position over the previous 50 years who would have gelled as they did. That's Margaret O'Callaghan there at Queen's University Belfast, who was talking to our producer, Gemma Ware. 
That's nearly all for this episode of The Anthill, but before we go, we wanted to spread the word about a couple of other podcasts we've been listening to. First, John Morrison, who you heard from earlier in the show, he runs his own podcast called Talking Terror. Produced out of the University of East London, each episode, John interviews an academic who studies terrorism about their research and influences. For more on Northern Ireland, dig down into their back catalogue, where you can hear John talking about his own research and an interview with his colleague Andrew Silk too. Next, check out the University of Liverpool podcast showcasing academic research from the university. In their latest episode on uh, Trumpisms, Carl Sims, an expert in rhetoric, dissects Donald Trump's discursive strategies and distills what they teach us about effective communication. And last but not least, our colleagues over at The Conversation Australia have just launched a new podcast in collaboration with ABC Kids. It's called Imagine This. If you like The Anthill, you'll love Imagine This, a new podcast created by ABC Kids Listen. It's based on the Conversations articles from our Curious Kids series. Here's a little taste. How do animals sleep? Why do stars twinkle? What is this? Um, do they sleep like us? Imagine This is a new podcast for kids and is a co-production between ABC Kids Listen and The Conversation. It's full of big ideas for little ones. This little? This little. This little. Maybe this little. (laughs) That's it for this episode of The Anthill. A big thanks as ever to the journalism department here at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and Annabelle Bly. Thank you to Ian Gambier for reading from the Good Friday Agreement at the start. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com, where you can also sign up to our free daily newsletter. Please do that. And if you enjoyed the show, please share the love with your friends and do give us a review online. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye.